As soon as these AC units turn off, you know what's going to happen, right? It's going to get humid in here again. Has anybody noticed when you walk outside today, it's like you're walking into a waterfall? Why is it so humid? Anyways, maybe it's just me. I sweat when I peel an orange. Anyways, Nehemiah chapter 13. A few hundred years ago, um, something happened in America. Something that was, was fairly unusual in the history of mankind. It had really only happened one other time since the days of Jesus. And that was the people, the, the general population of, of the world really, got tired with the consumerism and the formality and the, the man-imposed precepts of religion. It had happened a few hundred years before that, and out of it came the Reformation, which is where uh, a few men, Martin Luther and, and those men, stood up and said that we are tired of the man additions to religion. So they started changing the Catholic Church. Most of them died because of it. Um, if they didn't die because of it, after they were dead, they would dig up their bones and burn them and then throw them into the river because they, they didn't want to have anything to do with these people who were trying to change things. Well, a few hundred years after that, the, what was started by those men had been corrupted to the point that it really just happened all over again. The problem that they were trying to fix didn't get fixed. And so, a couple hundred years ago in American history, some people stood up and said, we are tired of the way we've been doing religion. We're tired of what Christianity has become. It's time that we go back to the source it's what they tried to do years before that in the Reformation. The problem is that they, they didn't go back to the source. They, they went to what they thought was the source. Oftentimes, we will, we will have inclinations of what the Bible says because maybe we've heard it before. Maybe we've heard our family members tell this story that's in the Bible. Or maybe we've, we've heard thoughts about what is in the Bible when, in fact, it doesn't actually say that. In fact, if I were going to say this quote to you, cleanliness is next to, can you finish it? Godliness, right? Did you know that's not true? You can be a pig. No, I'm just playing. Um, but it's not in here, at least. Cleanliness is next to godliness is not in the scriptures. And yet, the vast majority of people think it is. And so these people a few hundred years ago in America started what has now been termed the Restoration Movement. And it is from that that many of us who are members of the Church of Christ today can look and see if we had the history, we can look and see that, that we were baptized in a lineage of people going back to the Restoration Movement. And that has led a lot of people to think that the Church of Christ began at the Restoration Movement, which isn't true. See, remember back to what they were trying to do. They were tired of the world religions. They were tired of the man-made doctrines and man-made um, man imposing what he thought into religion. And so what they did was they went back to the Scriptures and found the church that's in the Scriptures. Now, many of us, like I said, have been baptized in a lineage from the men or people who were part of the Restoration Movement in America in a couple hundred years ago. But we're part of a church 
that didn't begin in the restoration movement. It began 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was resurrected. He spent some days with his disciples, building them up. And then he left, and in Acts chapter 2, the church was established. The story of the restoration is very similar to the story of the book of Nehemiah. So if you want to go ahead, you can go ahead and over there if you're not there already. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13 today because when we find Nehemiah, last week we talked about chapter 3 and 4 when he's building the wall, right? Eventually he gets that wall done, 52 days later. It takes him 52 days from the time he starts to the time he ends to rebuild a wall that had been down for 150 years. And now, when we pick up in Nehemiah 13, we are 12 years later. The wall was, was um, dedicated, was sanctified in chapter 12. It took a long time for Nehemiah. Just the building of the wall, the putting the stones together only took 52 days. But I think we can all be honest that when you're trying to rebuild something that has been lost for 150 years... Especially when it's not just a wall. What Nehemiah was doing was trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem into what it was supposed to be to begin with. And Ezra had come a few years before that and started building the temple. And it was, it was consecrated and dedicated in Ezra chapter 6. And now you have the wall is completed now too. And so now they have what looks to be the city of Jerusalem. However, if you go back in the history of Judaism... The city of Jerusalem was not just a bunch of sticks. It wasn't a bunch of stones building a wall or a temple. It was, it was more than that. It was the, the centerpiece of God's religion. It was the place where you went to Jerusalem to worship. You went to Jerusalem to learn of the scriptures. You went to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the place that, like in Isaiah chapter 2, he says, out of Zion, Jerusalem, the, the, the kingdom of the Lord will be established. And they thought that that kingdom was, was the city of Jerusalem, the, the Old Testament Judaism, and, and everything that goes along with the Old Testament law of Moses. However, we understand that what Isaiah was really talking about in Isaiah chapter 2 was what Jesus did in, Isaiah, in Acts chapter 2. But you see, Nehemiah and Ezra are not done when they finish building the temple and building the walls. When the stones are put in place, now they have a problem now they have to rebuild a people that has been gone for 150 years. And so it takes a while. Eventually, Nehemiah chapter 12, they, they dedicate the wall to the service of God. Something that they had already done in their building in Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1. But now it's done and they want to have a, they want to have a dedication so they dedicate it. And then in chapter 13, it's 12 years after the wall was built. It's 12 years of, of working on Nehemiah's side, as a civil engineer to rebuild the city and in leadership. And Ezra's side, he's been working on the, the rebuilding of the, of the Torah, the, the building of the, the people of God. But you see, um, when someone supports your work, they want to hear about it, Right? If you're going to send money to someone, say, for instance, I remember um, a few years ago when we were preaching on support, every year I'd have to take a trip and I'd go to Montgomery and then I'd go to some other places in Alabama and I'd just stand up there and say, listen, here's, what it ha here's what's been going on. We've had this many baptisms, we're having this many at worship service, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing blah, 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 all this other stuff, okay? Well, it's been 12 years 
And it's time Nehemiah did that. And so he goes back to King Artaxerxes. And he's going to update him on the wall and on everything that's been going on in Jerusalem. He's going to sit across the table from the king of Babylon, the king of Persia. And he's going to say, listen, here's what we have. Here's what we've done in the last 12 years. We want to thank you for bankrolling this, Artaxerxes. Because if you remember back in Nehemiah 1, 2, and 3, uh, Xerxes kind of gave him a blank check and said, whatever you need, take it. And so he goes back. And when he gets back, he sees some problems. A lot of times preachers will say, or, or, and rightly so, that, that it only takes one generation for a church, for a congregation to fall away. I think that's way too long. Because in Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah is gone for just a few months. Long enough to go to to see Artaxerxes and then to make it back. We don't know how long he stayed there. But he wasn't gone very long. And pick up in Nehemiah chapter 13 verse 1. On the day that they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, he's the same guy that in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, he's the one that consecrated the work. He's the one that started building the work. Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, the house of, the God, the house of God was uh, the temple. The, the chambers in the house of God were these small rooms. You may have been to church buildings that have this. It's not in reminiscent of that, but it's, it's something that you may think about. And you see along the sides, have y'all ever been in a church building where along the sides are the Bible classrooms? Y'all ever been in one like that? Well, they, they exist, I promise. There's one in Nesbitt, Mississippi. Anyways, they had these small rooms that were along the side, just like that. But their purpose was to, to put the tithe in. See, nowadays we can, we can put money in a collection plate and give online, but then they, they would give the tithe, the Old Testament tithe, and a lot of times it ended up being in physical things, and they needed somewhere to store that. And so the chambers in the house of God are those rooms. They're the storerooms. They're the sheds that they would, they would store the... The, the givings to the temple. And Eliashib has been given uh, dominion over those. He's, he's taking care of those. But he's also related to Tobiah. And you may remember that Tobiah is the guy that back in chapter 4, him and Sanballat said, hey, uh, we want to take these Jews over. I know how we can do it. We just wait till they're not looking. They're, they're worried building the wall. We wait till they're not looking. We come at night. We come during the day. They're, they're busy building the wall. It doesn't really matter what time we come. And we'll take them over. Tobiah is one of those guys, and Eliashib is now, 12 years later, related to him. Eliashib prepared, verse 5, for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. 
And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders. And they cleansed the chambers and brought back there the vessels of the house of God with grain offering and with frankincense and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had, had fled each to his field. See, when you don't have a store place to put the stuff that's supposed to be the paycheck for the Levites, the Levites don't have a paycheck anymore. And so now the, the Levites have left. They're supposed to be doing the work of the temple, but now they're in their own field. They've, they've started farming because they, they weren't getting paid anymore, and they couldn't just let their families starve to death, and so they, they went to work. Verse number 11. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed it as treasurers over the storehouses Shemaliah, or Shelemiah, sorry, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. And then he goes into this prayer again, verse 14, remember me, O God, concerning this, do not wipe out my good deeds. That I have done for the house of my God and for his service. You want to know how to kill the restoration movement? It's pretty simple. It's, it's really simple. And it does not take a generation. If anyone ever tells you that it's, it, it only takes one generation for the church to fall away, I'm going to say it only takes a couple of months for the church to fall away. Nehemiah is gone. And he comes back and they've completely changed. They've completely changed what they were supposed to be doing. They've completely forgotten what they were doing. And so, let's look at some points here. Point number one, if you want to kill the restoration movement, verses one through three, become legalistic. Legalistic means you take the law of God and you add to it. You take a specific part of the law that's, that applies to one specific area, and you say that it applies to everything. You remember in verses 1 through 3, that while Nehemiah is gone, they read the book of the law, and they find in the law that no Ammonite or Moabite is ever to be allowed into the city of Jerusalem. They find in, the, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, that isn't it amazing that they say that we read in the book of the law and then we can go and find the book of the law where they read? It's probably because it's what God intended for us to do is to go back and look at the scriptures. But anyways, they hear that no Ammonite or Moabite is ever to be allowed into Jerusalem. And so instead of kicking out the Ammonites and Moabites, do you see what they did? They kicked out every foreigner. Regardless of where you're from, Regardless of who your family is, you're gone. Because no Ammonite or Moabite is ever to be allowed into the assembly of God. The problem with that is, that's not what God commanded. God commanded that no Ammonite or Moabite is to be allowed. And even then, legalism 
has absolutely no concept of this, this idea that is innate in Scripture, which is called grace. Grace is giving to someone something that they do not deserve for their betterment and for my betterment. They didn't read in the part of the book of the law where it says that Ammonites and Moabites can be allowed into the, the people of God in the 10th generation. And it's been long past 10 generations from now. But they took one verse and they applied it to everything. They became legalistic. In fact, they also didn't realize that you remember there's a book in the Old Testament that's written specifically about a Moabite woman named Ruth, who in Matthew chapter 1 is recorded as being the grand, great, 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 so on grandmother of Jesus Christ. A Moabite was allowed not only into the people of God in the book of Ruth, she was allowed into the bloodline of Jesus Christ himself. And yet they became legalistic. And they said this one verse, do, do, let me just read you the verse, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse five, 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired, hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, and from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Deuteronomy 23 verse 3 says that no Ammonite or Moabite is allowed into the people of God. That means that every foreigner has to go. No, it doesn't. It also means you need to count generations. This is over 10 generations now. They didn't realize it. They cherry-picked a verse. And said that goes for everything. They became legalistic. And it caused them to forget the fundamental part of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that is, love your neighbor as yourself. Number two, they put family over their faith. Verse four, Eliashib is related to Tobiah. We don't know how close he's related, but he's related. Tobiah has not repented yet. We have no indication that he ever repented of what he did. Conspiring against the people of God to kill them. To stop the work that was, that was responsible for rebuilding the, the city and the people of God. He never repented. And yet Eliashib says, well, I know you want to be close to downtown and rent's pretty high. We've got an extra room. Well, it's not really extra, but we'll rent it to you. Their family was put over their faith. Later on, it happens again when their marriages caused them to have children. In, in, in Nehemiah chapter 23, or chapter 3, chapter 13, sorry, uh, look down at verse number 23. In those days also, I saw the Jews who married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, beat some of them, pull out their hair. Again, just because an Old Testament narrative says it does not mean that it was godly. If someone, someone were to marry a non-Christian today, or a fallen Christian today, 
doesn't mean that we should pull out their hair and beat them. But he, he was angry because he had just deal, dealt with this problem of, of giving the room to Tobiah. And then he realizes, you, you kicked out all the Ammonites and Moabites, but now you're married to them. How? You see, legalism doesn't, doesn't equate oftentimes. It's not consistent because you can't be consistent with it. I confronted them, cursed them, beat some of them, pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons and take their daughters to, for your sons or for yourselves. Why? What's so, what's so special about this language problem? We are blessed today to have the ability to open up a Bible that is written in English. And, and we may have different translations, ESV, New King James, King James, CSB, some other translation. And the reason we have these translations is because this book was originally written in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. But now we're blessed with the ability to, to read it in our own language so that we don't have to learn the language of the ancients. We don't have to sit down and learn Koine Greek to the point that you can translate it into your language and understand what it says. But they didn't have that. The reason why the language is such a big deal is because without knowing Hebrew and Aramaic, these children had no access to the law of God, which means they had no access to the covenant of God. They had no access to the love of God because they had not learned the skill of reading the scriptures that God gave them so that they could have a relationship with him. Their family trumped their faith. If you want to kill the restoration movement, number one, become legalistic. Number two, put your family over your faith. Put your family over your faith. I've told you many times about the story of a, a girl um, now a woman who was in college with me. Her boyfriend was deeply in love with her. He was a good friend of mine. And they dated for years. He was a member of the church. And he was strong. He spoke. He led invitations. He led singing. He, he prayed. He, he led prayers. He led Bible studies for the college group. He was... He was one of the strongest Christians that I've ever met. And they decided to get married. And we looked at her and said, now, you've been coming to our stuff for years now. You know the truth, right? And she said, yeah, I know it. Someone said, can I just be blunt with you? Because she was one of those people that you can be, you can be open with. You can, you can ask them questions like it is. And she said, yeah, of course. And she said, when are you going to become a Christian? She said, well, I, I can't right now. My grandfather is still alive, and he was a preacher for a, for a denomination, and he would, it, would, it would just destroy him if I were to become a Christian. I know the truth. I'm going to become a Christian. I just need to wait until he passes away. That was in 2009. He passed away in 2010. They got married in 2010. He fell away in 2010. She's still not a Christian. Now, do you see why... We urge so much that children learn to grow up and to become Christians and to date and to marry people who are also Christians. It is a whole lot easier. Now listen, I, am, I like to say I'm bigger and stronger and meaner than most people that I meet. You come up here and try to pull me off of this, it's going to be easier for you to pull me down than it is for me to pull you up. 
And that's what happened in the people of God. Number three, they neglected true worship. Go back to Nehemiah chapter uh, 13. Look at verse number 10. Not only did they, did they put their faith secondary to their family and they became legalistic, but then they started forgetting what true worship was. I found out that the portions of the Levites that had been given them so that the Levites, uh, so that the Levites and the strangers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and sent them in their st- set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed his treasurers over to the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistants, Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. They forgot true worship. They forgot what the purpose of the temple was. It just became a building that they got together and they, they had fellowship opportunities which were important. They're trying to rebuild a nation here, right? You can't rebuild a nation. You can't build a church. You can't build a group of people without fellowship. You can't, you can't just make it all about worship because if it is all about worship, then you come in, you check your box, and then at 11.30 or whenever Lee shuts up, you leave and we'll see you next week. And that's what they had done. They had turned it into all fellowship. But they had forgotten the worship. And he had to reestablish worship. If you want to kill the restoration movement, you, you forget true worship. In fact, that's what started the restoration movement. Sure, it was, it was problems with baptizing children that didn't understand truth. And they couldn't believe and therefore they were baptizing people that, that weren't lost to begin with. Yeah, of course, there were problems with, with the, the quote-unquote clergy that we talked about last week that was corrupting the people, people's minds into thinking that, that they were somehow higher, that they had the inheritance, when in fact all of us have inheritance. Clay Ross. But the main reason why the people a couple hundred years ago decided that it's time to go back to the New Testament is because they started reading that book and realizing that what was in that book was not what they were doing in worship services. The other day I was talking to Miss Debbie, the, one of the speakers yesterday. We went out to eat and uh, we were talking about the fact that, um, you know, in India we happen upon congregations all the time that we didn't know existed and, and they're faithful Christians. But she, she told me a story about a man who she knew very well who was a missionary in Iran. In Iran of all places. Could you imagine a Christian going to Iran today and trying to evangelize? They'd be on CNN quicker than anything, wouldn't they? But anyways, before all that started, really started, there was a missionary in Iran and he was walking through uh, the, the street on the way to the worship service on Sunday and he got to the building where they were worshiping. He went in and a, a man followed him in that he didn't know. And it wasn't at, at that point Uh, I forgot what year she said it was, but it wasn't at that point that they were scared. And so he just thought, we have a visitor at worship today. He turned around and said, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm glad to have you here this morning. Of course, he's speaking in Arabic to this man. And this man says, I want to know what you do. And he told him, this is our worship service. This is how we worship. This is what we do. And he said, now, that's my church. 
This man who looked like he was, he was Bedouin, he looked like he was someone that lived out in the desert, he said, that's my church. The guy said, well, great, it's great to have you. Come on in and sit down with us, brother. Come to find out this man was from the mountains. They had fled there for, because of persecution years and years and years before that. They didn't know that any other Christians on the planet existed. They also... The missionary and the church in Iran didn't know that they existed. You see, you can take this book, read it, learn how to worship, and no one will ever know that you exist unless you say something because the book is the, is the guidelines. He goes into a, serv- a church service in a different country. He's, he's heading through. I think he said he was from Pakistan, actually, now that I'm remembering it. But he's heading through and... He's in a different country, in a different place. He finds a building that says Church of Christ on it in Arabic. He walks in, he asks them, and they believe the same thing. You see, true worship is what brings the church together. It's, it's, what, it's what the church is built upon. Fellowship is, is vital, absolutely. But it's what the church is built upon, is true worship. Number four, they began to put profit over their piety. Verse number 14, remember me, O God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, he saw, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. But they, you don't tread wine presses on the Sabbath because you're not supposed to be working. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians, people from Tyre, also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath day to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this same way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors to be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. They put profit over piety. They, they started thinking that it was just about money. I don't know about you, but if I heard stories about how Nehemiah was, and later on in the chapters when he he finds out that they've intermarried, and he he deals with that in a very uh, specific way. I beat some of them, and I ripped out their hair. If Nehemiah, if I was a person from Tyre, and I'm sitting outside the gate at night, waiting on Sunday to come so that I can walk in the city and sell, And Nehemiah walks up to me and says, I suggest you not come back on Saturday. Uh, Saturday's our holy day, and you're not allowed to come here and sell goods. I would have probably listened to him too. I mean, he wasn't, doesn't seem to be a very 
very frail individual. He built a wall in 52 days. But, see, the problem was they, they had started thinking that religion, that the people of God is all about money. And it's not. They killed the restoration that Nehemiah and Ezra were trying to do because they forgot, they just forgot their way. They forgot grace, they forgot the law, they forgot fellowship, they forgot true worship. What they became was what they were to begin with. And if we're going to continue the restoration movement in America, again, it's not what started the church. It's what started the mindset. Going back to the original. And it's something that we need today as well. We need to understand the restoration movement. As Christians today in America, we need to embody the restoration movement. So that when someone says, you know, where do you go to church? You say, I go to the Warm Springs Road Church of Christ. Or I go to Blank Church of Christ. And they say, well, what's the difference? I mean, it's a question that often comes up. It's a question that's asked every time you say that. Well, I, I, I think I've heard of them before. What's the difference in them and blank? I mean, y'all have heard it, right? Shake your head like this if you've heard it. You can shake your head like this if you know. And I'll introduce you to someone this afternoon, and I guarantee they'll say it because it happens every single week. Anyways, the answer is not, well, I, just, I, don't, I don't really know. My, my, my daddy went there, and uh, I grew up there. I grew up Church of Christ. And uh, I don't know what that means, but I, I grew up there. No. We need the, the mentality of when someone says, what is the church of Christ? You say, our goal is specifically to just go back to the Bible. That's it. We don't have any special creeds. We don't have any special, you know, God didn't, God didn't come down and tell us that we needed to go back to the Bible. We realized if we're going to be what God wants us to be, we need to go back to when he said what he wants us to be. And we started doing it. But if we become legalistic, if we start putting family over our faith, if we start neglecting what true worship is, and we just see it as a time of either one fellowship or two, a time to come and punch your clock and be done with it, we will kill the restoration movement. And it does not take a generation. It takes just a few months. And when we kill the restoration movement, we haven't killed the church. We've killed our faith. The church is going to be here regardless because it's in this book. As long as this book exists, the church exists because you can go back and find it. What we will kill is our faith. And we'll end up being just like everybody else so that when they say, what's the difference between you and someone else, you can say, honestly, Absolutely nothing, just like they are. And that's the truth. If you want to become a member of the body of Christ today, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you. It's a time when you can let us know that you want to become a Christian. It's a time when you can let us know that you want to be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you need prayers, if you are a Christian and you need prayers, let me say this. It doesn't take an entire congregation to kill the restoration movement. You can kill the restoration movement in your own faith, and nobody else around you will ever know it. So if you need this, 
time to come and to ask for forgiveness or ask encouragement, then let us know that while we stand and sing as well.